Find out what the whole world is thinking in the agenda. This summer has been one of the driest on record in Europe and the UK, causing wildfires, droughts and deaths. And scientists say it will stay hotter and drier until November. High temperatures are shattering records. The UK broke the 40-degree barrier in July when it's normally 28 degrees. The heat waves pushed England into a formal state of drought, which water officials expect to last well into next year. Almost two-thirds of Europe is now under drought warning or alert. The hazard then of forest fires has increased and glaciers are melting fast. The EU's Joint Research Centre says we're seeing severe to extreme drought conditions in Italy, parts of France, Germany, Eastern Europe, Southern Norway and much of the Balkans at a cost to the EU and UK economies of around $9 billion. Farmers are struggling with summer harvest forecasts 12 to 16% below the five-year average for crops like maize, sunflowers and soybeans. The report also says there will be severe impacts on the energy sector, particularly for hydropower plants. Energy generation from nuclear power stations too were reduced because of a lack of water to cool the reactors. Recent rainfall has not been enough to replenish rivers, groundwater and reservoirs to normal levels. So if heat waves in Europe, with all their consequences, become the new normal, how can governments, businesses and citizens manage extreme summer weather better and protect land, homes and livelihoods? Let's consider the real impact of Europe's water crisis with Tongi Holmgren, Executive Director of the Stockholm International Water Institute. Thanks ever so much for, for joining us. Now, scientists are warning that the current drought situation is the worst we've seen in, in 500 years. Essential waterways all across Europe have, have all but dried up. So how would you assess the current situation? How bad is the, the water situation in Europe? I think what we are seeing is the looming global water crisis that is hitting us heads up. Last year in Europe, we had it places too much water. This year, too little water. And this is also not only in Europe. It's part of the worldwide experience the last few years. And I think this also points to the real connection that water puts us all together. It's a global uh, experience. Global events are happening. And of course, now we are getting more used to that. We cannot take water for granted. You say it's bringing the world together and we can't take water for granted. Do you see these more frequent water-related natural disasters continuing? Normally, in parts of uh, the world, and especially in Africa, you may be also in Asia, you were used to have uh, rainy seasons, monsoons, or rainy seasons before harvesting time, etc. Now you cannot be sure about that. And it's a hydrological cycle is changing. So what we are seeing in Europe now is that we have, I guess, worldwide, but Europe especially, to adapt to a new system or to a new, uh, new business where we no normal, I will say, where water is not, is not uh, rainfall is not happening as it used to be. And we cannot take for sure that we have the harvest as we have been doing before. It also means a lot for all of us, of course, for households, manufacturing industry, uh, urban areas, etc. So here we really have to dig deep into what we can do, what we can learn from each other around the world, how to handle too much or too little water. 
And just to talk about how big this issue is, floods and droughts could cost the global economy $5.6 trillion by 2050. So as you say, it's energy, food, national security, all those things are threatened. Yeah, I often claim that water is a connector and this is really what we see this year. It connects us around uh, countries, cross-border, but also in different continents. And as I mentioned, that we are so dependent on water, we know that, but running out of water is well, it's life-threatening, of course. You cannot, uh, you cannot survive without water, but also for day-to-day -day businesses, like the manufacturing industry, you maybe not think of it on a daily basis, but you are so dependent on have clean water for any manufacturing process around the world, not to speak about agriculture, of course, but let me say a few words about manufacturing industry or the industrial production at large. Water is still a fairly small cost when it comes to production factor assets in the production. But if you run out of water, if you don't have access to clean water, then their financial risk is tremendous. You can even run, get out of business having no water. And of course, it says without going that that is the same for agriculture, food production. So it's quite a severe situation that we are entering into now uh, from well, not only this year, but more, most recent years on. In which case, what can businesses and governments and consumers, you and me, do to mitigate some of those rising costs? I think we have to learn from other sectors. For instance, I often compare energy, energy use. Nowadays, we use less and less energy per unit produced. And I think we're just at the starting point when it comes to water. We are, go we are quite accustomed to have access to water but we cannot take that for granted in the years to come. So I think look into investments in more water smart technologies that we use less water for what we do in households, what we produce and also for agriculture production. I think there are techniques around, but also behavior changes that we need to scale up and also learn from best or good practices around the world, how you could deal with these situations in areas where you are more well uh, not used to have that much of water that maybe we are used to in europe in more drought strict areas i think let's uh, do it in a global connection uh, way that we do learn from each other and that goes far beyond just new technologies i think we can learn a lot from more traditional indigenous people also how they have survived and also being used water, being used to water of less uh, uh, supply than we are used to it's interesting you talk about thinking smarter, working collaboratively, um, and it, but it not just being about technology. And if we think back to some of those old, old traditional um, products, like in Spain, who produce half the world's supply of olive oil, that's been hit by the worst ever recorded um, drought. In Italy, tomato crops and wheat that are used for pasta uh, uh, and all of that, they've been affected by this extreme weather. So where else are we going to see a, a big hit, do you think, in, in prices of things that traditionally we've relied on? I think the price mechanisms are quite um, um, complicated in a sense, building up. but I think the lack of water, as we see in many parts, but also in some parts flooding, will impact pricing tremendously. And I believe then in years to come, we might also see a structural change in the way where we, use, where we do produce more water-dependent crops, 
or less water dependent crops. I think that is also an adaptation to the realities that we now are facing. So there are of course uh, techniques available like drip irrigation, etc., for agriculture, but also in the manufacturing industry that you can recycle water, you can reuse water, you can invest in water, and by that you can lower your cost. And our experience in our institute, if you start with that, you can also earn or at least lower your cost for energy or chemicals, whatever you have in your process, because water is such a fundamental part of any process producing food or producing uh, tools or even cars, if you don't think of that on a daily basis. So I think that is part of it. And of course, as customers also, or households, I would say also to um, use more water efficient technologies in your household, use less water, because I think water is becoming quite a scarce asset. It's a finite resource, but we know at the same time that demand is increasing dramatically, thanks to economic development, but also due to population increase. So we need to allocate water more smart and also use it more, more efficient in years to come. One particular part I would like to mention also that we are, well, we are not that good globally on, on treating our wastewater. Up to 80% of all wastewater goes untreated, goes untreated out into rivers and lakes in the ocean. And I think there is a lot of potential possibilities, but also need to, to, to invest more in wastewater treatment. So in sum, we need huge investments and financial resources to help us solve what I call the looming global water crisis. You keep mentioning that word investment and something that yeah. needs to be increased. Can the world afford that right now? I'm thinking of all of the supply chain crunches, the war in Ukraine, which is affecting yeah. production. Uh, it might slip down the list of priorities. So I think what we need to do is to get access to more finance, could not, not just rely on public finance, that is for sure, but also with finance, I think, will follow also inventions and innovations in more water-smart uh, techniques, but also in our behavioral change, uh, larger awareness. Let me take one example. A few years ago, uh, Cape Town was more or less running out of water. They had day zero in April, I think, April 9th or 11th, uh, a few years ago. And I think all over Cape Town, maybe South Africa as well, there were banners all over the country, all over the city, save water. And we have seen the similar situations in Sao Paulo, in some of the mega cities in India. And there you really are hit on the ground. You nearly need to do something directly. But I think we can learn in different parts of the world, how did they manage to, 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 to take on that uh, challenge in different mega cities, but also in different countries. So I think, yes, investments are needed. And I think we need to find ways to attract non-public funding to water investments, uh, which has not been the case uh, so far, if I compare to energy uh, investments, for instance. We're talking about a global problem, which you say needs a global solution. Is yeah. the international community taking it seriously enough? <clears throat> Well, I think uh, the challenge is that water is a very local asset or commodity. Uh, my country, Sweden, just 10 million people, but we have the number of utilities setting the price, etc., providing water, I would say. But linking it together 
uh, with diff similar situations around the world, it's a global a global issue. So I think we can learn. Last week, we arranged here in Stockholm the World Water Week, where we gather decision makers or from cabinet ministers to non-government uh, organizations to discuss how we can come up with solutions to handle the current uh, water situation in the world. And I think by that, we also link together uh, from different continents, from different walks of life also what we can learn. So I think there are possibilities also that we can handle on a global scale, but it's boils down to the local uh, level when it comes to investments. Tongi Hongren, thank you very much. Thank you. Long periods of water scarcity dry out the land, so when it does rain, there's a high risk of flooding. Around the world, a slow water movement is gaining momentum, conserving or restoring wetlands, river floodplains and mountain forests, safeguarding carbon storage and protecting homes for threatened plants and animals at the same time. And this applies to urban settings too. Let's talk to Beijing landscape architect Konjian Yu, who invented the concept of so-called sponge cities. Now, we'll get on to those sponge cities in just a moment, Professor Yu. Thanks for joining us. I want to ask you, though, because you were brought up in rural China, where there was quite a lot of extreme weather, heavy rains, lots of flooding, dramatic storms. Y you had some pretty frightening experiences, didn't you? Well, it was uh, the monsoon climate, you know. I. When I was 10 years old, I falling into the, the river, which is uh, have a heavy flood, but almost got drowned. But I I was able to climb up to the to the land because of the river being of uh, 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 overgrown with uh, reeds, with willows, with uh, with vegetations. So it's quite safe actually. You know, even in the flood, you can actually make friends with the flood. Is not an enemy. It's interesting you talk about making friends with the floods because I suppose Chinese farmers use those ancient techniques, don't they? Those methods for, for managing water. I mean, what, what did you learn? Well, for thousands of years, the Chinese uh, farmers uh, was able to adapt. The Chinese farmers were able to adapt the monsoon climate for for agriculture, for field making, for for living and for the building settlement, such as building terraces on the mountain slope to slow down water flow, to build a slow, to build to build uh, ponds in the villages to to catch and retain stormwater and uh, and reuse for for the for the dry season. And also, when the water when you have too much water downstream, we create floating gardens to grow vegetable, to grow rice, to grow. Uh, canola flour and anything. So that's that's all kind of adaptive solutions. When what when we have too too when we we have uh, little water or too much water, uh, these are the solutions to adapt to the to the change of climate. This what I have learned. This this are this what what this what I get get learned when I was a uh, uh, childhood during the uh, during when I was a childhood in the village. So what are sponge cities? How do you envision they're going to look and how they're going to work? Well, sponge city is nature-based solution to retain water, to slow down water, and to be adapted to water. So we can imagine that instead of building dams and dikes and a big reservoir, 
you actually can make the landscape porous to capture and retain the water whenever water falls, which is a, there's a rain water and a slowdown. Slowdown, which means we, we need to give uh, water more space. So creeks should not be channelized, should not be, should not be paved with the concrete. And at the downstream, at the end of the water, where when you have too much water, you should, you should be able to adapt to the water, which means maybe you, you, you should select a higher ground for villages or for cities, or even build a, a higher threshold in your building. To, to keep away, uh, uh, to, to keep your building safe. So these are all adaptive solutions. So instead of fighting against the flood with high flood wall, with concrete, with high dams, which actually accumulate the force of nature, you actually you lose the force of nature to, to, to just adapt it and build your, your city and buildings and villages to, to, to to make friends with water. How can sponge cities mitigate the, the impact and the effects of drought? Well, as I said, uh, the sponge cities, the concept, the concept was inspired by the monsoon uh, uh, regions, agricultural and uh, urban uh, uh, strategies, uh, the, the ancient wisdom of adaptation to the monsoon climate. So the sponge city was inspired by the ancient wisdom adapting to the monsoon climate. So, which means you have a dry season, you have a wet season. No, that's monsoon climate. Uh, during the monsoon season, you have heavy, you have heavy rainfall, but during the dry season, you have a couple months that has not a drip of water. So, sponge city is a nature-based regulating solution. You keep the water during the monsoon season, and you recycle and use the water during the dry season. So that's a sponge city. It's not about just retain uh, water. It's also about how you recycle, reuse water, and recharge the aquifer, and at the same time, make, uh, uh, make the ecosystem uh, uh, alive. Your concept has inspired many engineers, many city planners, many architects. Um, where is it working? Because there have been some pilot schemes, haven't there? Well, I, I will say the concept was, was inspired by the, the ancient wisdom uh, uh, in the monsoon region, where the climate has very dramatic uh, climate uh, change. Uh, it's very dry and very wet. So, so theoretically, this can be applied to anywhere in the world. When you have a climate change in the in the Europe, uh, in Europe you used to be in in European countries you used to, you in European countries you used to have very mild climate like London like Paris, but now you are suffering the climate change so you have flood now, so that's why I will say it the sponge city concept can be applied to uh, wherever you need to have a resilient landscape or resilient city whenever you need to regulate water based on nature instead of uh, based on industrial high investment in building concrete and steel uh, uh, infrastructures so you're talking about the concept and the theory there but it has already been applied to, to many cities around china so give us a few examples of where it's working 
Well, I have been practicing uh, the, the, the sponge city concept all through China. We have built over 500 projects in more than 200 cities in China. Uh, and beyond that, we have built projects in, in Thailand, for example, in Bangkok, right in the middle of the city of Bangkok. We build a forest over a wetland, a forest over a lake, which is a central park of, of Bangkok. And we also build a project in, in Russia, which actually moves concrete and restore the resilient riverbank, the resilient waterfront. So, and, and many examples, for example, the mostly, the most, the mostly affected uh, monsoon climate, uh, the, 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 uh, 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 for example, in, in, in the, the most south part of China, the Hainan Island, we actually built a huge sponge park in the middle of the Sanya city. And it's a forest over the lake and the, the water fluctuate during the monsoon season and during the dry season. And the whole area, so the lake, I mean the lake which means a sponge, the sponge can regulate about a million, a million cubic meter of storm water and, uh, and uh, uh, transform the urban center into a safe and beautiful uh, uh, residence area. Uh, and transform the urban center into a safe and a beautiful community. And similar case is in the middle rich uh, Yangtze River area, which is a Nanchang city. We build uh, about one square kilometer size central park in the new district of Chang, uh, uh, in the new district of uh, Nanchang City, and in this case, we uh, transform an ash dump, you know, the coal ash dump, into a resilient sponge park, which regulates about a million uh, uh, cubic meter of storm water. Uh, so during the monsoon season, the whole park can be a water retention lake, but as spawn, spawn, uh, in, the, uh, in the monsoon season, during the monsoon flood, the whole park can become a water retention lake. But during the dry season, this become a beautiful park, which means you, you need a combination of green and blue forest and lake, and also integrating the people's public space. There are three main challenges to sponge cities, though, aren't there? Um, governance, the design, and the big one, financing. Well, yes, of course, because sponge city compared to the uh, business as usual solutions, such as channelizing the river, building high flood wall, or, or building dams, or use pump system, or use, use a stronger uh, underground pipe system. Sponge City is a very innovative solution, but it is a very old, ancient solution. It's a low tech, but we almost, today we almost forget that for a long time people uh, uh, survive because we have such kind of nature-based solution. But in terms of uh, uh, the, the, the challenges, the governance, the technology, and the financing, Actually, the most important, the most difficult challenge actually is our mentality, our, our, our concept. We have been too 
much used to business as usual solutions. So engineering solution, I call it the gray infrastructure. So as soon as you have a bad, have a ecological centered thinking or ecological oriented thinking or ecology oriented thinking, which we call this ecological civilization, we will have totally have different uh, uh, mentality and we certainly need a different kind of technology, which is not necessarily high tech, but it's uh, just uh, low tech. Financing wise, you need to solve this problem anyway. So uh, instead of putting much, much more expensive infrastructure into uh, installation of fixing uh, the century old infrastructure, like also in London, in Paris, we can invest actually much less in restoring the natural system, which means build as ecological infrastructure. Professor Yu, thank you very much. Thank you. But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all of the Agenda team here in London, goodbye.